Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and supplemented them with research into Greco-Roman history. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. A warning, this episode features violence and sexual content. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Have you ever been stargazing on a cloudless night? Maybe you drove far from the city lights to where the night is its truest, deepest black. Perhaps as you laid in the grass or on the hood of your car, taking in the glittering canvas before you, you pondered. You asked big, cosmic questions, to which there are no easy answers, and tried to reconcile your existence in an infinite universe. And in doing so, you took part in a human tradition as old as mankind itself. From the ancient Maya to the Babylonian Empire, our ancestors looked to the stars for answers about fate. We've also used them to learn about ourselves. For those who practice astrology, the ever-changing alignment of the stars influences every day of our lives. But it's the celestial patterns on the day of our birth that shape our very identity. Of the 88 constellations, there are 12 that correspond with the 12 signs of the Western Zodiac. The constellation in which the sun was positioned when we were born determines our sign and thus what kind of person we will become. But these constellations aren't just clusters of stars, they're also stories, myths about gods and men, monsters and heroes, ancient tales that reveal more about who we are than we may realize. Welcome to Mythology, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is the third part of our summer solstice takeover. Continuing through this week, we're digging into the myths behind the signs of the Western Zodiac with a special extra episode each Thursday. Check out tales, superstitions, and mythical monsters for more of the special. Today on Mythology, we're telling the myths behind Sagittarius, Capricorn, and Aquarius. These astrological signs are depicted as an archer, a sea goat, and a water bearer. If you or someone you know was born under one of these signs, listen closely. You might find their personality reflected in myths written millennia before they were born. Coming up, we'll learn the identity of the Sagittarius Archer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Last week, we told the myth of Scorpio, the scorpion monster sent by Artemis to kill the hunter Orion. But if you turn your gaze just west of the constellation Scorpius, you'll see a cluster of stars in the shape of an archer aiming his bow at the scorpion's heart. 
This is Sagittarius, the astrological sign for those born between November 22nd and December 21st. And thanks to its location at the center of the vibrant Milky Way, one of the brightest and most visible of the 12 zodiac constellations. But if you look carefully, you might notice that the archer doesn't have two legs, but four. That's because the constellation takes the shape of a centaur, a creature with the torso of a man and the lower body of a horse. According to some, the constellation of Sagittarius represents Crotus, the son of the satyr god Pan. But the sign is also connected to a different mythological figure, the wise centaur Chiron. In Greco-Roman mythology, centaurs were often depicted as savage creatures, but Chiron was different from his half-horse brethren. He was the immortal son of the titan Kronos, educated by the gods Apollo and Artemis. While his fellow centaurs were wild and primitive, Chiron was a master of the arts, medicine, and archery, and teacher to some of mythology's greatest heroes. From Achilles to Jason, Chiron taught them everything they knew and remained a friend and mentor throughout their lives. But today, our story begins at the end of one of Chiron's famed mentorships. From the light of the fire crackling in the hearth, Hercules could see that Chiron's cave was exactly as he remembered it. Its stone floor was piled high with books and scrolls, and its walls were papered with charts and colorful artwork. In one corner sat a collection of instruments, and in another, an arsenal of weapons. Hercules smiled. Some things never changed. For months, he'd been traveling through the wilderness to perform 12 labors for King Eurystheus. While traveling near Mount Pelion on his way to his fourth, he decided to pay a visit to his old mentor. And as he was sitting in the warmth of Chiron's cave, he was glad he did. Being there was a comfort. Despite the chaos of his own life, knowing that this place had stayed the same brought a bit of peace the hero desperately needed. Chiron trotted over to Hercules, the sleek fur of his hindquarters gleaming in the firelight. Besides the streaks of silver in his unruly beard, Chiron had hardly changed. His fiery brown eyes still held the same spark. The centaur handed Hercules a plate of roasted rabbit. Thank you. I haven't had real food in days. I see you're still quite the eclectic. I prefer the term Renaissance man, or centaur, I suppose. What is Renaissance? Oh, something I've learned from a bit of prophecy. I won't bore you with things that have yet to pass. <laughs> I am far more interested in the present, especially when it comes to my favorite student. Oh, I doubt I'm still your favorite after all these years. You've taught so many. Achilles, Theseus, Jason. I would hardly put Jason among them. No, you've always stood out among your peers, heroes and gods alike. But I sense something's changed in you. You're not the same young hero I once knew. Well, I have aged, Chiron. We can't all be immortals. No, this is something else. There's a heaviness in your presence. Excuse me for being so blunt, but it seems something is weighing on you. Tell me. What's happened? Hercules cast his gaze to the stone floor. Chiron's words were true. Hercules told Chiron about what he had endured since he'd left that cave, beginning with Hera's jealous rage over Zeus's infidelity. Hera had punished Hercules by tricking him into killing his wife and three children, and ever since he'd carried immeasurable guilt. All his life, Hercules had paid the price for his divine parentage. I'm a demigod, yes, but also a bastard. Not a human deity nor legitimate son. I don't belong, Chiron, and that's a burden I've carried for a very long time. 
Have I ever told you about my birth? I don't believe you have. But I know the centaurs were born from the union between King Ixion and the cloud nymph Nephili. You taught me that. Yes, but that is not where I came from. My mother is a different nymph. Philera is her name. But my father was a god. A titan, actually. Kronos. And if you remember our lessons, Kronos' wife was the goddess Rhea, which makes me something of a bastard myself. I had no idea. But I don't understand. How did you... Become a centaur? Well, that's where things get interesting. You see, Rhea was no fool. She suspected Kronos was being unfaithful. So to continue his affair undetected, Kronos transformed himself into a stallion. I suppose he thought it made him rather... virile. But I digress. Inevitably, Philera became pregnant, and the result of their tryst is now standing before you. Half man, half equine. Or as my mother saw me, an utter monster. Philera was so horrified by my appearance, she abandoned me after my birth and begged the gods to transform her into anything that would allow her to escape the responsibility of motherhood. So they changed her into a linden tree. My gods. But what about Kronos? You still had a father. <laughs> you know as well as I that gods make miserable fathers. No, he had no use for a hooved bastard. So I was an orphan, until I was found by Apollo. He and his twin sister Artemis raised me together. They taught me everything I know. Apollo instructed me in prophecy, music, and medicine. Artemis trained me in archery and made me a great hunter. Everything I am is because of them. But what about the centaurs? Don't they accept you? <sighs> no. But being of the same form, we have a mutual understanding. They are simple creatures, tribalistic and suspicious of outsiders. They have little interest in anything that does not concern them. Whereas for me, knowledge has always been a salve since I was young. Chiron looked into the crackling fire, the flames gleaming in his brown eyes. But as you and I both know, knowledge can also bring suffering. Prometheus brought fire back to the mortals, and Zeus punished him dearly for it. Chained to the rocks as an eagle eats his liver for all eternity. It's perhaps one of the greatest injustices of our history. But I suppose there are some fates worse than alienation. What I'm saying, Hercules, is that I understand you. It may seem as though we've been thrust into this world alone, but we can find those who accept us as we are. Apollo and Artemis were not my blood, but they taught me true family isn't the one you're born into, but the one you choose for yourself. You have been more of a father to me than Zeus ever was, though I know now I will never be worthy of a family. My dear hero, you have always been worthy. Why do you think you're my favorite student? Now, tell me, what can I do to help you gain your freedom? What is your next task for this tyrant, Eurystheus? To trap the Aramanthian boar on Mount... Uh, Aramanthus. Ah, yes, I've read about it. But it's a mindless beast. I imagine this wouldn't be much of a challenge for you. Yes, I've slain my share of monsters, and have the evidence to prove it. I've dipped my arrows in the poisonous blood of the many-headed Hydra. I'm wearing the pelt of the Nemean lion. That's the problem, Chiron. I can kill a beast, but capturing it alive is another matter. Then I will do what I do best. I will teach you. Chiron led Hercules back into the woods but as they walked through the trees, neither teacher nor hero knew they were being watched. 
moving quietly in the distance was a band of wild centaurs. Distrustful of the hero's intentions with Chiron, the warriors had followed the pair into the forest, keeping watchful eyes on their fellow centaur. And soon what they saw in the woods confirmed their darkest suspicions, or at least they believed it did. Here it is. I... I don't know what I'm looking at. What you're looking at is the most sophisticated hunting trap yet to be invented. It's a tightly woven net suspended to a pulley system. The moment your savage boar trips this rope, he will be hopelessly captured. Let me demonstrate. Chiron trotted a few steps forward, deliberately catching his hoof on a rope concealed beneath the underbrush. A giant net suddenly dropped from the trees above. It landed on top of Chiron, capturing him in a trap of his own making. <laughs> you see, it works. The beast won't know what hit him. Chiron and Hercules froze at the sound of thundering hooves. They turned to see a dozen furious centaurs stampeding toward them, clubs and spears raised. What in Hades' name? Chiron, remembering his current state, realized what they were so angry about, just in time for them to rush toward Hercules. Please, stop! This is all a grave misunderstanding! Chiron watched from the confines of his trap as a confused Hercules dodged the centaur's spears and clubs, weaving between the galloping warriors. Chiron tried to call out to his fellow centaurs, but it was clear that they were not there for conversation. And soon, Hercules was swept up in the chaos of battle. Hercules drew his bow and began to shoot at the charging centaurs. Chiron watched in horror as his brethren fell to arrow after arrow. Then remembering his sword, Chiron cut himself from his net and galloped directly into the onslaught. Stop! Stop at once! You are all acting like beasts! But it was too late. In the chaos of battle, Hercules had already released one of his arrows, striking the galloping Chiron in the leg. Chiron slowed to a stop and stared in disbelief at the wound. He locked eyes with Hercules. A wordless realization passed between them just before Chiron collapsed. Hercules rushed to Chiron's side and pulled the arrow from his body. Chiron, Chiron, I didn't mean it. I, I, I didn't see. Listen to me carefully, Hercules. Is what you said true? Have these arrows been dipped in the Hydra's poison? Yes. Oh, gods, forgive me. I've killed you. No, old friend. You forget we immortals don't perish easily. I will survive, but it will be agony. <laughs> But you're a healer. We can take you to the cave and make you a tincture and... The centaur gripped Hercules' shoulder and looked into his eyes. Sometimes, the only way we can heal is to acknowledge the depth of the wound. And the fact that sometimes we can do nothing about it. I can't. We have to do something. Anything. There is one option. After Chiron was infected with the Hydra's poison, it's said that the wise centaur came to Zeus with a proposition. He would take Prometheus's place and serve out his eternal punishment for him in exchange for the Titan's freedom. Chiron and Prometheus were alike in their respect for the sharing of wisdom. If Chiron had to live his immortal life in anguish, he wanted to do so in the most sacred way he knew how, in service of knowledge. Zeus was so moved by Chiron's willingness to sacrifice himself that he not only freed Prometheus, he cast Chiron into the stars. 
For this reason, in astrology, Chiron is known as the wounded healer and represents healing, pain, and spiritual growth. Whether they're wounds to the soul or body, we can't always fix ourselves. But sometimes the depth of our pain can transform us and help us heal others. It's fitting that the mythical figure of Sagittarius should have such a noble end. Sagittarians are often characterized as magnanimous individuals, ones that will lend their wisdom, experience, or, as in the case of Chiron, even sacrifice themselves for the well-being of others. But to call them tragic martyrs would be a disservice to Sagittarians everywhere. They're also adventurers and scholars on a relentless pursuit for knowledge and new experiences. But while the Sagittarius is unafraid of change, our next sign clings to stability. So much so that if you take them from their element, you might just call them a goat out of water. Coming up, we'll hear the tragic story of Capricorn. Every so often, something so impactful happens, it has the power to capture the attention of a whole country. An event so deadly or dumbfounding, it has no choice but to live on in infamy. Hi, Parcasters. It's Ashley Flowers, and I'm exposing the most sinister cases from the darkest corners of the globe in my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, come along as I guide you on a wicked world tour. 15 different countries, 15 infamous crimes. Take a trip to Iceland, where six people confessed to a murder that never actually happened. Journey to Mexico, where a Lucha Libre wrestler moonlights as a serial killer and travel to New Zealand where two friends hatch a deadly plan to become famous. Each episode of International Infamy explores the twists and turns of a notoriously high-profile case, zeroing in on the cultural details which make the crime unique to its location and explaining why it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Follow my new Spotify original from ParCast, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers, and catch a new episode every week. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Next, we turn our gaze to a cluster of 20 stars in the Southern Hemisphere. But you may have to squint because Capricornus is not only one of the faintest of all the constellations, but the smallest of the zodiac. Capricornus is, as you may have guessed, the constellation of the sign Capricorn, which rules the skies from December 22nd to January 19th. If you're lucky enough to spot Capricornus at all, with a bit more squinting, you may see that it takes the shape of an inverted triangle, or if you're particularly imaginative, a goat with the lower body of a fish, in essence, a sea goat. Its roots reach back to the legends of the Titans, the first generation of Greek gods who came before Zeus and the Olympians. But the mythology of Capricorn specifically centers on Precus, an immortal deity and the father of all sea goats. But God or not, like most fathers, Precus struggled to balance his love for his children with his desire to protect them from the outside world, or in his case, the world above the surface. Off the coast of Athens, beneath the Aegean Sea, Precus was hard at work in his cave, mapping the tides. His creator, Kronos, was the personification of time, and as his loyal deity, Precus took his responsibilities seriously. He had been created to monitor time and the seas, and the seas were where he stayed. Though Precus knew something lay above the water, he didn't dare abandon his duties to venture there. His silvery goat's beard undulated in the current as he pored over his charts, thumping his scaly tail thoughtfully on the sea floor. Hmm, 
the moon is particularly close. Let me see here. He examined the lunar calendar and with a pang of recognition, realized that it was the winter solstice, his painful yearly reminder of what he'd lost. There had been a time, moons and moons before, when Precus was the father of many children. He had raised a generation of little sea goats, only to lose them to their own curiosity. One by one, as his sons and daughters grew, they also grew inquisitive. It began on the winter solstice when the tide was at its lowest. His eldest, lured by the receding waters, swam to the surface never to be seen again. And for each solstice after, the cycle continued. One by one, Precus's children made their way to the world above the water. And one by one, they never returned, until there was just one child left, Mikros, his youngest. Dad, Dad, I have something fantastic to show you. Precus turned to see Mikros swimming toward him, beaming. His horns had just grown in, but while the right one was strong and straight, the left was short and stunted. It was no surprise, though. For all Mikros's life, his right ear was perky while his left drooped, making him appear lopsided. This difference had always made Precus protective of his youngest son. The seas could be brutal, and it worried him to think Mikros would be at any disadvantage. You're late, Mikros. The sun's rays are already 10 degrees past coral. We should have started your lesson by now. I know, I'm sorry, but look what I found! Mikros held out a small branch decorated with vibrant purple flowers. Where did you get this? Uh, I found it caught in the kelp forest. Isn't it beautiful? Do not lie to me. I know this flora does not grow in our seas. How close did you get to the shore, Mikros? Just to the sandbar, that's all. It must have floated there. You know that going anywhere near the surface is strictly forbidden. But I'm 200 years old. I'm not a child anymore. You're not ready to go off on your own, Mikros. Why not? You know why. Mikros touched his droopy ear self-consciously and looked down at the seafloor in shame. I know what's best for you. Believe me, I'm protecting you. Like you protected them? You know I tried. For centuries, I've watched your brothers and sisters closely. I've warned them about the surface and tried to keep them here. That's exactly why they left. Because you tried to control them. You tried to control everything, and they couldn't take it anymore. They left because of you. Precus opened his mouth to speak, but closed it a moment later, not knowing what he could say. Mikros's eyes were wide with regret. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said that. It's not you. It isn't. They just wanted to see more of the world, to really live and dream. Don't you dream, Dad? Don't you wonder what's up there? Of course I do. But I'm a sea goat. And I have responsibilities that keep me here. Where I belong. Where you belong. But I want to know what's up there, too. Plus, I miss them. I've been so lonely since they left. You work so much, it's like you're gone, too. Don't you miss them? Yes, I work because I miss them. Because it's something I can control. Because no matter what I do, I can't bring them back. But you can, can't you? Kronos is the god of time, and he made you. Can't you move time as he does? You could just shift the tides backward and bring them home and- And then what? I can warn them like I always have, but they still yearn for the surface. Turning back time won't change anything. It will only force us to relive it again. No, this is something I cannot fix. Maybe you can't, but perhaps I can. If you'll give me a chance. No, Mikros, I cannot bear to lose you too. I know you've always been worried about me, but I'm ready. I will come back, and when I find them, I'll bring our family back too. Please, just let me try. 
Mikros looked at his father, pleading, but Precus saw something else in his eyes, a sureness he hadn't noticed before. One moon's time. Promise you'll return with them then. I promise. The day Mikros left, Precus watched him swim toward the sun, growing smaller and smaller until he disappeared entirely. His youngest and last child had entered the other world. For weeks, Precus could hardly sleep. He spent every waking moment poring over his charts and calendars, measuring the moon's phases, anticipating the day Mikros would return with his siblings. But he never did. One moon's time came and went. Precus was beside himself, imagining what had happened to his youngest son. Had he gotten lost above the water? Had he met a predator and been unable to defend himself with his stunted horns? Soon Precus's worries propelled him into action. He was a practical seagoat, and he would not waste time agonizing when his sole remaining child could be in danger. He decided he would go to the surface himself. Fear twisted his gut as he swam up and up. He knew there was something above the water, but what it was, he didn't know. And that's what scared him the most. Precus broke the surface and gasped as oxygen rushed into his lungs for the first time. He scanned the open water but saw nothing. The world was strangely empty, endless blue, and a thin streak of yellow. Sand and rocks in the distance, land. He swam toward it, taking note of the birds flying above him. They glided around the air like fish. It was as if they were underwater, but in reverse. Precus shuddered at the strangeness of it all. As he approached the rocky shore, he spotted something moving amidst the rocks. He could make out horns and, yes, woolen fur. It was a sea goat. Precus's heart leaped in his chest. He had found his children. He was sure of it. But as Precus swam closer, the figure came into full view, and what he saw made him gasp in horror. The top of this creature looked like a sea goat, but the bottom half was something else. It had legs, back legs. My gods, what, what is this? The goat climbed down and approached Precus at the water's edge. He saw it clearly for the first time and gasped. Its right horn was long and straight, while its left was stunted, just as its right ear stood upright and the left ear drooped. This was no animal. This was his son. No, 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 Mikros, what happened to you? Is this why you didn't come back? Say something! Why won't you speak? Mikros looked at his father sadly, but didn't reply. Instead, he let out a small bleat. Precus's eyes filled with tears. The surface had changed his son. Mikros had become something else now, a mindless beast without speech, and he would never return to the sea. Oh, my precious boy. I should have never let you come here. Mikros rested his furry head against his father's, and Precus knew that somehow he understood. Then Mikros looked over his shoulder and let out another, louder bleat. Somewhere in the distance, a chorus of voices bleated in reply, and soon Precus could hear the sound of hooves approaching. Dozens of goats clambered their way down the rocks. Precus recognized each and every one of his children. They were all there. Mikros had kept his promise. He had brought their family together, as close to the sea as their new legs would allow. Precus began to cry, 
He was the very last of his kind, and though he was proud of who he was, that was a reality he could not bear. He said a small prayer to Kronos, asking for his forgiveness. Then he used his front legs to pull himself out of the water and onto the shore. For the first time, he felt the sun on his scales. They fell away, and soon his beautiful tail was replaced by hind legs, just like his children. Precus's mind became hazy. He tried to hold on to his knowledge of the tides and the phases of the moon. He could feel his thoughts slipping as if dragged away by the waves. But as he stood on his wobbly back legs for the first time and joined his children on the sand, it didn't matter anymore. All that he knew was an overwhelming feeling of joy to be among his family again. The story of Precus the Sea Goat is perhaps one of the most heartbreaking of the Zodiac. In some versions of the myth, Precus, a deity of time like his creator Kronos, turns back the tides of time to warn his children what will happen if they step on land. In others, the sea goat becomes so lonely without his family, he asks Kronos to take his immortal life. But in all versions of the tale, the ending is always the same. Kronos, in an act of tribute to Precus, puts his likeness in the stars. The wise, protective father of the sea goats embodies many of Capricorn's most distinguishing traits. Capricorns are known for being old souls who are driven by a sense of duty. In the Zodiac, this sign represents authority figures that we must learn to work with and overcome. Capricorns are often workaholics who give their all to what they do, but they're also strong, disciplined leaders who thrive within structure and are most comfortable in environments that they can control. But beneath their stoic exterior hides a deep emotional core. They're sentimental beings who value family and show their affection through their dependability. Capricorns are always there when you need them, and as in the case of Precus, they will make hard sacrifices for those they love. But our next sign in the zodiac will literally move heaven and earth, not just for their loved ones, but for humanity as a whole. Coming up, we turn our gaze to the constellation of Aquarius. Now back to the story. If you're still squinting at the constellation Capricornus, tilt your gaze up slightly, but keep squinting. Above Capricornus lies another faint but much larger constellation in the shape of a figure pouring a jug of liquid. This is Aquarius. Aquarius is the astrological sign for those born between January 20th and February 18th. In Latin, Aquarius means water bearer, but also cup bearer, and for good reason. The original Aquarius was a young man named Ganymede, the cup bearer of the gods whose duty was to fill their glasses with liquid ambrosia. But before he cavorted with deities on Mount Olympus, Ganymede was a Trojan prince, and according to Homer, the loveliest of all mortals. He was so beautiful that Zeus abducted him and brought him to the heavens to be his cupbearer and secret consort. But if Zeus thought his young lover would be grateful for the honor, then he was very, very wrong. Ganymede made his way through the celebration, gracefully dodging dancing nymphs, lyre players, and the lecherous Pan, who was chasing after the aforementioned nymphs. All the while, he managed not to spill a drop of ambrosia, the precious elixir of the gods. Coming through. Excuse me, Ares, mind your spear, won't you? This is a party, not a battle. No, no, Dionysus, you've had your fill. It was an impressive feat, made even more wondrous by Ganymede's beauty. 
The willowy, golden-haired youth was a sight to behold. Gods and goddesses alike stared as he went about his duties. But he was used to it. Ganymede was used to all of it. And frankly, he was bored. It seemed all the gods did was drink and gossip and bed one another. Every night there was another party, and every night Ganymede was subjected to more of their hedonism. It was all just so predictable. But this was his life now. It had been ever since Zeus had taken him from his native Troy and brought him to Mount Olympus to be his consort. And now that Zeus had granted him eternal youth, Ganymede guessed it would be his life forever. He'd be refilling glasses of ambrosia and dodging the advances of various deities for all eternity. And that made him miserable. He hadn't known what he wanted to do with his life, but he certainly didn't imagine himself as a walking wine cask. He just thought he would do something more meaningful. Ganymede slipped away to a pillar in a quiet corner. He set down his jug and sighed. But just when he thought he'd found a moment's peace, Zeus's voice thundered above the crowd. <laughs> quiet, quiet, please. On behalf of myself and my beloved Hera, I want to thank you all for coming. Ganymede rolled his eyes. Beloved Hera, indeed. Zeus certainly didn't speak about her that way when Ganymede was in his bed. I think I speak for her also when I say that we are grateful for the work and unique talents of each and every one of you. We all work so hard for the mortals in all the realms of our world, living and dead. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Hades. <laughs> I think we deserve to enjoy ourselves as thanks for all that we do, because truly, we do so much. So please, raise your cups to us! <laughs> Ganymede watched, disgusted, as the gods congratulated themselves and continued to party harder than before. He had to get out of there. Ganymede tried his best to slip through the crowd unnoticed and back to his chambers. But the problem with being cosmically beautiful is that doing anything unnoticed was next to impossible. <laughs> Ganymede, another round for the delectable Oceanids, please. <laughs> the young man groaned and obliged, filling the cups belonging to a gaggle of giggling sea nymphs. And why don't you pour one for yourself while you're at it? Join the celebration! Oh, I would love to, but I have work to do. These cups aren't going to fill themselves. Oh, you work too hard. Didn't you hear my speech? Tonight, we enjoy ourselves. It's the least we can do when we run the world. Hmm, I suppose. You suppose? Ah, Ganymede, you're as mystifying as you are beautiful. And I must say you're all the more alluring for it. Tell me, what do you really think? Ganymede paused. He knew what he should say, some empty compliments and words of praise, but he never was any good at faking adoration, or anything for that matter, and truthfully, he was fed up. Well, if I must tell you... You must. <sighs> then I would have to say that your speech seemed rather conceited and out of touch with the reality of the mortal world. This is not a celebration of any worthy accomplishment, but only the gods' own excess. That's what I really think. The sounds of the party grew quiet around them as all eyes turned to watch Ganymede and Zeus. The young cupbearer hardly flinched, but the king of the gods was growing red with fury. My chambers, now! In Zeus's marble chambers, Ganymede took a seat on a golden dais as the thunder god paced, seething. 
Ganymede was intimately familiar with Zeus's chambers, but this was one rendezvous he would have preferred to skip. I don't understand you, Ganymede. I saved you from your mortal life, brought you among the gods, gave you the gift of immortality, and this is how you thank me. You know I didn't ask for any of it. You didn't have to, because I chose you. Do you know how many mortals would kill to be my cupbearer? Not to mention the privilege of sharing my bed, in my godly form too. I've ravaged maidens as a swan for heaven's sake, a swan! Yes, I've heard the stories, but please spare me the details. I have been more than kind to you. All the gods have welcomed you to Mount Olympus, yet it seems you insist on making yourself an outsider here. You refuse to blend in. Yes, well, I guess you could say I haven't found many like-minded individuals. What can I do to make you happy, Ganymede? I care about you, truly, I do. Ganymede stiffened. Zeus's emotional sentiments made the young man uncomfortable, but they also presented an opportunity. I want more freedom. I may be a cupbearer, but I'm not a slave. I wish to do with my time what I like, even if there's some needless celebration occurring. Done. We will find a second cupbearer. And I want to come with you on your visits to the mortal plane. Oh, uh, well, if that's what will make you happy, fine. Be my guest. We will visit the humans tomorrow. Meet me at dawn. The next morning, Zeus kept his promise. Ganymede accompanied him to Earth, specifically to Troy, Ganymede's former home. But what Ganymede saw filled him with righteous anger. On Earth, a drought had devastated the countryside of his former home, shriveling up crops and starving livestock. The mortals were struggling to survive, and yet, despite having next to nothing, they continued to make sacrifices to the gods. Ganymede watched as farmers slaughtered their last skeletal cows in Zeus's name, praying to the gods to bring them rain. He seethed with the knowledge that back on Mount Olympus, the gods were simply having another party. That night, Ganymede made his rounds with his jug of ambrosia, but each time he poured the divine elixir, he felt his gut twist with disgust. All of this wine and all of this food, and none of it was going to the beings who needed it the most. Unable to stand it any longer, he marched up to Zeus. I need to speak to you. Ah, are you here to thank me for the outing today? I was wondering when you would. No, that's not it. But I do want to talk to you about the mortals. They are clearly suffering. We need to help them. And I have a plan that will. <laughs> I take you to Earth once, and you think you can rule better than I can? This isn't about power, Zeus. I don't want that. I only wish to lend my ideas. Well then, let's hear these big ideas of yours. We need to redistribute our resources. My jug can serve the gods endlessly for centuries. If we just gave some water to the humans, every few weeks even, we could end their drought. Absolutely not! Why? That is a sacred vessel that only serves the gods. Its contents are reserved for us and us alone. We will redistribute nothing. Then you leave me with no choice. With that, Ganymede strode to the edge of Mount Olympus and poured his jug of ambrosia from the heavens. It flowed in an endless stream onto the mortal plane below as Zeus looked on in horror. What are you doing? Saving mankind. It's said that after Ganymede poured his jug of ambrosia onto the earth, Zeus was determined to punish him for his defiance. 
But according to some versions of the story, the mortals were so grateful for the gift of rain, they thanked the gods with a multitude of offerings. And soon, Zeus realized just how wrong he had been. Instead of punishing Ganymede, he rewarded him by placing him among the stars. From there, he continues to send rain when the mortals need it the most. Ganymede truly embodies the Aquarius spirit. Aquarians are often considered the humanitarians of the Western Zodiac, idealists and dreamers who harbor visions of tearing down repressive structures and replacing them with radical innovation. But ironically, their revolutionary spirit doesn't necessarily translate to emotional passion. Aquarians are nonconformists who tend to live on the fringes by choice. They're notoriously aloof, and though this makes them intriguing, it also makes it difficult to break into their world. Feelings can make them uncomfortable, and they can be emotionally distant and wary of any relationship that could threaten their personal freedom. But perhaps that's to be expected. No one is perfect. We are human after all. Even Ganymede, a deity among men, the loveliest of all mortals, had his flaws, just as Chiron did and Precus. No matter who we are or what sign we were born under, we all have our blind spots. What's important is that we celebrate our strengths, acknowledge our weaknesses, and continue to grow. So keep gazing at those constellations, because the stories in the stars still have so much more to teach us about ourselves. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back this Thursday with the final installment of our summer solstice. Join us as we delve into the ancient stories behind Pisces, Aries, and Taurus. These signs are represented as a pair of fish, a ram, and a bull. As always, you can find more episodes of Mythology and all Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. If you're curious about the astrological ideas we touched on in this episode, check out Horoscope Today, another Spotify original from Parcast, which gives a quick daily update on how the stars are affecting each sign of the zodiac. We'll be back Thursday with another epic story. Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Alex Garland, with writing assistance by Andrew Kelleher, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Kai Jordan, Drew Lawn, and Ellie Schiff. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. It's Ashley Flowers, and here's a quick reminder to check out my new true crime limited series, International Infamy. Every Tuesday, I'm taking you across the globe to look at 15 of the most notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Some stories are sure to shock. Some may leave you stumped, but all are quite the trip. Follow my new series, International Infamy with Ashley Flowers. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.